If you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 18. Uh, Today we see the Apostle Paul enter the city from which our own takes its name. I want to begin by giving you some general information on the Greek city of Corinth. We'll start with the geography. If you look at Greece on a map, you have mainland Greece, and then the whole southern region is almost just this large island. And I say almost because there is this thin strip of land that connects the two. I think at its thinnest, it's four miles wide. And in the 1980s, I think they actually cut a canal through so you could go from one side to the other. But there's this thin little strip of land, this isthmus, that connects mainland Greece to this large, almost island known as Achaia or Peloponnese. And on this lower southern section, you have famous cities like Olympia, Argos, and Sparta. But in this thin little strip of land, you have the city of Corinth. And I guess you could say that ancient Corinth was a crossroads of sorts. If you're going from mainland Greece to the Peloponnese, you would pass through Corinth. It it being such a thin strip of land, there were seaports on the east and west side, and so you really did have a crossroads of sorts that made this an important city. Hopefully, that idea of the crossroads is why uh, the founders of our city named it what they did. Uh, Because Corinth also had quite the reputation. I've heard Corinth called the Vegas of the ancient world. It was called this because it was famous for its uh, sexual promiscuity, And its games. There were phrases that were used that pointed to this reputation. It it was not a good thing in the first century to be called a Corinth girl. If you wanted to impugn a woman's character, you would call her a Corinth girl. If someone uh, said, play the Corinthian They meant live a life of debauchery. And this is what you would expect from a city dedicated to the Greek goddess of Aphrodite. The goddess of beauty, fertility, and sexual love. On the high place above the city of Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite. And at one time it was said that there were over a thousand temple prostitutes in service there. And this, this issue of sexual immorality is one that we will see Paul address in his first letter to the church at Corinth. So you could say that if Athens is the city of poets and philosophers, Corinth was the city of prostitutes and athletics. It was the city of games as well. Every other year, Corinth would host an event called the Isthmus Games. It was second only to the Olympic Games at Olympia. And I think they would alternate every 
year. You'd have the Olympic Games and then the Isthmus Games, and then it would just go back and forth. And in these games, you'd have horse racing, foot racing, javelin and discus throws, boxing, wrestling, and there's this ancient form of MMA called pancration. You can still travel to ancient Corinth today and see, I don't know if anyone's ever been, has anyone ever been to ancient Corinth? You you can still go today and see uh, the starting blocks in the ground that the runners uh, would use, where they would line up to begin their race. And if you think this makes sense, when you think about Paul's letter to them, especially his first letter, he's going to use images and metaphors from different games. And these really would have resonated with them. They were familiar with them. He says things like, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. Every athlete exercises self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body to keep it under control, lest I myself should be disqualified. Paul is going to pick up on those images, those embedded jewels in their sports, in their athletics, just like... He did in Athens with their poets. He's going to do the same thing here and show them that the prize that we run for is not some perishable trophy that's going to pass away, but it's an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's going to draw from these images in the games. Um, And so this Vegas of the ancient world is where the Holy Spirit directs the Apostle Paul. He's going to stay there for 18 months. It's his longest stint. And he's going to teach God's word among them. And he's going to write letters to churches. You have some of them in your Bible before. You believe he writes the letter to the Romans in First and Second Thessalonians from the city of Corinth. But here's a thought I'd like for us to keep in mind as we approach this text. It's Paul's own words. We see an account of Luke telling us Paul came to Corinth and then this happened and this happened and this happened. But wouldn't it be nice if we knew what was in Paul's head as he entered the city? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says... When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's going to approach this city differently than he approached Athens. 
no mention of poets, no lofty speech or wisdom. He is going to focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. He'll say in Romans 1 that this good news, the good news of Christ, his work on behalf of sinners, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is his message he's bringing. And the second thing he tells us is his own mental state. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and trembling. Remember, he had had a long road. In Philippi, he had been beaten with rods, imprisoned, and then had to escape an angry mob. Some of those crowds followed him to Berea. He is mocked in Athens. And now he's in this notoriously lewd city, and he's asking himself, how long is it going to take for things to turn sour here? When's the riot going to happen? Am I going to go back to prison? What's it going to be? But the point is a church will be planted here. Of all places for a church to be planted, there will be one planted in Corinth. You you might not be surprised to hear of the church being planted in Berea because it had all those noble people that searched the scriptures. But what about in Corinth? Well, there will be a church planted here, but it's not because Paul is a master communicator. It's not going to be because he brings a message that they would naturally consider wise. He says, I was with you in weakness so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, he can have all the best intentions, but still, they mess this up, don't they? If you think about 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he, he, he says, I have received a report that you're fighting about who you're following. Some of you say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. Some say, I follow Cephas or Peter. Some say, I follow Christ. We need to remember, as did they, that the power is in the message and the author of the message, not the messenger. John Calvin comments, saying, Paul arrives, a small man, unknown, having no eloquence or brilliance, without any wealth or power, and yet his confidence and his eagerness to spread the gospel are not swallowed up. The Spirit of God must have given him wonderful power, working through him in a heavenly way rather than a human way. That idea of the Spirit of God working through us in a heavenly way reminds me of some words I heard at a conference this past April. I had the privilege to go to a pastor's conference called Together for the Gospel, and Dr. Ligon Duncan, who's the chancellor of my seminary, he had the very last word, and he stood up and just gave all of us this charge, and he said, Four things that just stuck in my mind and hopefully I'll never forget. He looked at us and he said, Brothers, preach the word 
love your people, pray down heaven, and then watch Christ build his church. And those are words that I wish to live by, and I believe they're words that describe Paul's year and a half in Corinth. The Spirit of God is going to work in a powerful way, but it's a heavenly way, not not a human way. And so we're going to see that, but first let's pray. Heavenly Father, we plead for you to work this morning through your word. Heavenly Father, we remember that this in this is true wisdom, and in your word is true life. You have a people that are yours, a people that are ripe and ready to receive your word. And so, Father, we ask this morning that through its preaching, uh, your word would find fertile ground in the hearts of your people. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles." And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal And they all seized uh, Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
So I was, I was thinking about how you would dissect a passage like this where you just have a kind of a running list of events that happened during Paul's time in Corinth. And I uh, thought, you know, maybe we can kind of make our three points or three headings, these three significant statements that are made in this passage. You've got a significant statement that Paul makes in verse 6, another one that the Lord makes in a vision in verses 9 and 10, and then the final one is uh, made by the Roman proconsul in verses 14 and 15. And I believe in all of these, we see God's power at work. So, we'll start with the first. Once Paul arrives in Corinth, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. These will prove amazing friends and co-laborers for Paul. Luke tells us that they are Jews. Most likely, they're Jewish Christians at this point. Luke does not say anything about their conversion. But he does say that they recently came from Italy because Emperor Claudius commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, I find this very interesting. It's very interesting because there is a Roman historian named Suetonius. And he writes a book on the 12 Caesars. And in his chapter on Claudius, he tells why the Jews were kicked out of Rome. This is, this is what he writes. He says, quote, As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. End quote. So you have Jews kicked out of Rome due to constant disturbances that are being caused because of someone named Crestus. Now, maybe there is a Jew named Crestus. I think what happened is the, th- is the same thing we've seen happen in every other city up to this point. The Jews are disturbed by the preaching of Christus, which is the Greek for Christ. And Suetonius either makes a typo or mispronounces the name. And if that's true, then how amazing is it to think that before Paul even gets to Corinth, another believer has already taken the gospel to Rome. And it's stirring everyone up. And that's what's landed Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. Their friendship and fellowship will prove an incredible gift to Paul. He'll write in the final chapter of Romans, he'll say, he'll call them his fellow workers in Christ Jesus and say, they risked their necks for my life. They are just what a weary soul needed. But how do we get to this statement Paul makes in verse 6? Well, he's doing what he normally did. He would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath and open a scroll and make a case that Jesus is the Christ. And then their response was something he'd also seen before. They opposed him. They reviled him. 
And so he utters these words in verse 6. First, he stood up and shook off his garments and then said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. There's some historical weight behind his actions that would not have been lost on the Jews. This image of him shaking out his garments meant something to them. It it was an allusion back to Nehemiah 5. In in Nehemiah, the, the people of Judah are commanded to stop oppressing their poor neighbors. And then Nehemiah stands up and he has a garment and that he begins to shake and there's dust and dirt and maybe some leaves or twigs that start to come off this garment as he's shaking it. And he says, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. They would have recognized what Paul was doing. Paul is saying... May God shake out every man from his house who rejects his son and reviles the appointed Christ. There's obviously an implicit call to turn, to repent, so that you might not be shaken out by the Lord. Then there's the statement, your blood be on your own heads. I think we can just understand that on our own. But there's a call back to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel is uh, describing himself as Israel's watchman. You think of the job of a watchman. What is it? It's to keep watch on the land for enemies. And then if you do see enemies, sound the alarm, warn the people so that they will be ready and won't be caught off guard. Ezekiel says that if the watchman fails to do this, if he fails to see the people or if he fails to warn the people and they are waylaid unexpectedly, their blood is on him as the watchman. But if he does warn them and he does sound the alarm and they don't heed that warning, their blood is on their own heads. Ezekiel says, if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. Paul is saying to them that there is danger coming. He is is warning them of their spiritual condition. He's warning them that they are separated from God. That that there is a great high priest who has interceded for a people and made sacrifice to wash them and to take their sins away. And that there is life and salvation found in him. But if you despise him and do not heed this warning, then your blood be on your own heads. Jesus himself says something similar in Luke 23. You might remember he's being led away to his crucifixion and there's this crowd of people following him and there's a group of women who are mourning 
and lamenting for him. And Jesus, on his way to the cross, turns to them and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. There will be judgment because of Jerusalem's rejection of the promised Messiah. And so Paul is saying, I have sounded the alarm. I've sounded the warning. I, I am innocent. My conscience is clear. You have rejected it. And so I am going to the Gentiles. It's, all, it's, it's funny. He just goes right next door. He doesn't go across town. He doesn't go into the Gentile neighborhood. He sets up right next door in, in the home of a man named Titius Justus, who we're told is a worshiper of God. And in the power and providence of God, hearts begin to change. People begin to believe. We're told that even a man named Crispus, who was the ruler of a synagogue, this, this man who is probably the most respected Jew in Corinth, believes. And we're reminded that only God can change the human heart. We can, we can sound the alarm. We can play the role of watchman. We, we, we can tell uh, others where salvation might be found, but we, just as we can't save ourselves, we can't save others. That is God's work, but we are called to be faithful in the message he's given to us. And this leads into the second statement in verses 9 and 10. Paul has a vision, and the Lord speaks to him and says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. We probably don't think of the Apostle Paul as one who is afraid to go on speaking, but apparently he was. There could be any number of reasons. Maybe he's just has memories from previous cities and he's worried about the next, the next riot, the next beating, the next imprisonment. Maybe he is discouraged by the immorality of Corinth, just suffering from the, the immoral culture shock. But he's, he's worrying about something that has not yet happened. And, oh man, we can resonate with this so well, can't we? We're harassed by all the thoughts of things that could happen. Let's say you've got a, a boss at work and they send you a text message or an email or something saying that, that they want to meet with you. And then all day you're just worried and consumed. What have I done wrong? What do they want, what do they want to talk about? What, what bad thing is going to happen? And you have the meeting and it was, there's nothing. All your worries, none of them proved true. Yet we can think of examples where we are harassed by these, all these negative things that could happen but have not yet happened. And we suffer while we wait. Maybe that's what's happening with the Apostle Paul. But the Lord comes to him in his despondency and says, Do not be afraid. 
You know, it, I think it could be a wonderful thing if you just decided, I'm going to do a study and I'm going to go through the entire scripture and find every instance where someone says, do not be afraid. There's a word spoken to Joshua, who is the successor to Moses and will bring the people into the promised land. There are words spoken by, uh, spoken to Elisha's servant. He wakes up and sees to his horror that their city is surrounded by a great army. And Elisha says that great line, Do not be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. It's a line spoken to the disciples. Their boat is floundering in this massive storm on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. It's also spoken to the women who come to the tomb of Jesus to care for his corpse. And an angel rolled back the stone and sat upon it and said to them, do not be afraid. We're reminded that as God's people... We are to not be afraid. I remind you, hopefully the Beatitudes aren't too far in your rearview mirror. Being fearful was not on the list of Beatitudes. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, Blessed are the fearful, for by their anxiety they will avoid trouble and enter my kingdom. He does not say that. We are not to be afraid. Why? Well, we see in verse 10, For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Now, we might naturally think the weight of that statement, the weighty comfort of that statement is found in not being attacked and harmed. But the weight is found in the promise that God is with you. Paul. You know uh, John Wesley's dying words? The last words he was reported to have said before he took his last breath. He said, the best of all is God is with us. That is the best of all. God is with us. And this is not something exclusive to Paul. Jesus promised his disciples. He said, and he has promised us, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God will be with Paul. He will protect Paul. He will keep him from harm because he has a purpose. We see at the end of verse 10. For I have many in this city who are my people. Remember the parable of the sower? All these different soil types and grounds and the seed is thrown out. Some of it is choked out by weeds and others snatched up by birds. But there's some seed that falls on fertile ground and new life sprouts up. God is telling Paul, I will be with you. I will keep you from harm because... I have many people here. There is fertile ground here in this city. 
They aren't his people because he knew that they would make the wise, smart decision to choose to be his people. He has already purposed that in this city there are ones who will be my people. There are ones who will hear and they will believe. There will be people in this Vegas of the ancient world who are sheep. And once they hear the voice of the shepherd, they will follow. There are so many in Corinth who were just ready for the gospel. And that God-shaped hole that Blaise Pascal spoke of, that God-shaped hole in their hearts had yet to be filled and satisfied by all the pleasures and entertainments that their city boasted. And they were longing for something more. They're ready for the gospel. And again, I hope, I hope this comforts you because understanding this takes the pressure off of us. We don't have to be the miracle workers. God has a people. All we have to do is faithfully sow the seed of the good news and he brings the increase. That's what he's telling Paul. Do not be afraid. I will keep you from harm. Speak the message, the words I've given to you. I have a people here. And then you have the final statement. It's made by Gallio, who's proconsul of Achaia. The proconsul. He is, he is the, he's the Roman governor of that province. This one was a famous one. His brother was Seneca, one of the most famous writers of Rome. Both he and his brother were committed to wisdom and justice, and that commitment is going to get them in trouble with an emperor who's coming by the name of Nero. Nero will have both Gallio and his brother executed. But we meet him because the Jews... Bring Paul before his tribunal. And they claim that Paul is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. He's, he's starting this illicit religion. And again, you see the power of God working. This man could have condemned Paul so easily with a snap of his finger. And yet, before Paul can even open his mouth to defend himself, Gallio says, I'm not getting involved. Handle this yourselves. He protects Paul. I was reading this morning in Isaiah 44. uh, The Lord mentions Cyrus, who was king of Persia. And he described Cyrus saying, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill All my purpose. Cyrus is the one who would decree the Jews could go back to Jerusalem. They could rebuild the city and rebuild the temple and he would finance it. We see something similar here. We see this important, influential leader 
being used by the Lord to fulfill his purpose. He's not condemning Paul. He's not throwing him in prison. He is protecting him so that the church might be built and established in Corinth. Here's what I want to end with. The Lord called Paul to Corinth. And he would hold him fast and preserve him until it was time for him to move on. And Paul had no reason to fear because God was with him. Pray that you would have that same confidence in his providence. By his decree, the Lord has placed you where you are. He has a job for you. So don't be afraid. Being fearful is believing that he is very far away and he's unconcerned with your life and with your trials. But that is not the God that Scripture speaks of. He will preserve us and he will be with us. Let's be faithful with what he's given. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would be those who are no longer enslaved to fear. But we would be those who trust in you and act and speak the words that you have for us. We desire that you would use us to accomplish your purposes for your glory. That just as you brought comfort and strength to Paul to do the purpose you had for him in Corinth, would you do the same for us here in our own city of Corinth? You have given us a wonderful church family. You have given us fellowship. You have given us brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. You have given us a new heart. You have given us your spirit. You have preserved us to this point. In spite of how many times we probably worried about getting to where we are today. But here we are. Would we be reminded that out there in this city, here in Alcorn County, in in our neighborhoods, in our schools and offices, You have your people that you will draw to yourself, whose eyes and ears you will open. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to be those who are bold and not afraid to speak, knowing that you are Lord and you are in control. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.